We exist in, in red oceans, not blue oceans, but in red oceans, and we have to fight for our survival. So, so, get, that, so get that piece right. Um, another thing that, that really worked for me is... The following is a conversation with Roy Osing. Roy took a startup to over a billion dollars in sales and delivers audacious and unheard of ways to produce high-performing businesses. He's also the outspoken author of the Be Different or Be Dead book series. And here's his story. Roy, really appreciate you taking the time. You know, you don't often get to sit down with, virtually at least sit down in this world we have with an executive who's scaled a company to over a billion dollars in sales. So really grateful for the opportunity. Uh, you know, how are you feeling? I'm feeling awesome. And listen, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with you and, and your audience. I really am. I appreciate that. Uh, one of the things that you say that I think people really resonate with, you know, you're, you often said people try too hard to be the best and not try hard enough to be different. Can you elaborate on what you think that, on what you think that is or why that is? Yeah, it's like my observation uh, it goes like this. I actually think that undifferentiation in the world is happening right now. And, and the irony is that even though Customers have never wielded more power. Competitors have never been more aggressive. You know, changes have never been so robust and stochastic. In spite of that, you would think that that organizations would get a would get better at differentiating themselves. My observation is they're actually getting worse. And so I've coined this phrase phrase called undifferentiation. I actually think undifferentiation is happening. Now, why is that? Well, the drivers are 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 words like you just mentioned, like I call it claptrap. I mean, everybody loves to use claptrap to try and define what makes them special. And so they say, well, they're better than, they're best, they're number one, they're market leaders. All of those words, which do nothing but kind of, you know, make you feel good. To a customer, it means absolutely nothing. Okay, because everybody's doing it. All you're doing is playing into the herd. The herd, everybody in the herd thinks they're best, which means nobody's different. And the fact of the matter is, um, we need to give customers, particularly, we need to give them good reasons, okay, for engaging with us. And the way you do that is to be different, okay? My whole mantra is be different or be dead. And the idea behind that is real simple. If you can't find a way, right, to differentiate yourself in a way that your customers or people care about, uh, then, you know, you're going to have a real rough ride with the ultimate consequence of being death. And, and just play that out. You've seen organizations die. Most of them die, not because they screwed up on the cost line. It's because they screwed up on the revenue line. They haven't been able to give their customers a compelling reason why they should buy from them and nobody else. And it all starts with what I call lazy differentiation techniques, which quite frankly, Daniel, are being promulgated by academia. I mean, you go and look up, you know, a universal or unique selling proposition. It's not unique at all. What it is, is it's a definition of what you think of yourself. Okay, that's the ultimate narcissistic approach to differentiation. What you need to do is you need to compare yourself, okay, to others, right? Carve through that, come up with something that makes you truly unique. And that's what you use as a basis for your differentiation claim in the, in the marketplace. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm really worried because it's not happening um, and organizations just seem to be content to be driven by what the pundits and the academics say about differentiation. And look at 
I'm not one of those guys. Okay. I built my career and business in the trenches, learning how to be different, learning how to, how to carve out a unique special place in the world for my customers. Okay. And, and so, you know, my tracker, my track record is a billion. Okay. And there's very few people that can say that quite frankly. And one of the reasons for that is the opposite doesn't work. It doesn't work. So your audience, I'm saying to you, go check out my blogs. Okay. There's a ton of stuff in there that talks about differentiation. I'm often asked, what is the main business issue in the world today? And there's no question about it. It's differentiate, 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 because it's not happening very well. I can definitely agree with you a lot on there. And I'll make sure to have those blogs in the link for anyone who wants to check that out and learn from uh, Roy's wisdom over there. But I definitely resonate and agree with the fact that a lot of times there's quote unquote over differentiate. Well, I forget. Do you say over differentiation, under differentiation, under differentiation? No, it's 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 undifferentiation. It's, it's, no, it's no differentiation at all. It's lack of differentiation. I mean, exactly. it's not even an, on a scale. It's binary. It's not differentiation. So that's where I came up with the kind of syntactically incorrect word called undifferentiation. No, so the reason I mention that is because in my head, I'm thinking people are oftentimes, you know, university, for example, is trying so hard to differentiate. Kind of, I thought they're trying to over differentiate, and by over differentiating, they're really undifferentiating. So I know that sounds oxymoronic, but what I mean by this is you'll have, you know, a school like Penn State, for example, somewhere I went to, or an Ivy League school, for example, and they'll think so hard about their mission statement or their purpose, like how can we make this different? How can we make this different? But at the end of the day, no matter how many times or how many hours they put into it, at the end of the day, it's some kind of rendition of to serve our students, to educate in an absolute manner that surpasses the rest. So reason, reason I had that kind of opposite earlier is because, because they're like, you know, they probably have these, these board meetings where the president says, guys, how can we differentiate our mission? And they're going to spend hours rewriting the same sentence a thousand times. Then they're going to go with version 492 that says, is our purpose to serve our students with the highest degree of academics, unlike other yeah. universities with world-class faculty. And realistically, they're doing something else or when in reality, you know, I think something better and, you know, would love to do a, a small little live assessment on this. Um, but to be like, you know, our university, you know, prides itself in these subjects. These are the specific things we've taught. Say, for example, if it's some science school, our science school, not my pitch isn't good. No, look at l l let me just bottom line it for you. OK, sure. everything that we're talking about here is what I call aspirational claptrap. It's like we're in business to save the home planet. We're, we're here to serve our students in a, in a superlative, miraculous, you know, amazing way. Okay, I'm not saying that that's, that material isn't important. It may be important to your organization in terms of the value set that it wants to define for itself. But make no mistake, it's your view of what you want to be. Okay, it's got nothing to do with differentiating yourself from the hordes out there that, by the way, are all saying the same thing. They want to serve their students as well. So once having given you the problem, Daniel, I'm going to give you the solution because okay. I figured it out. Okay. A long, long, long time ago, I came up with this idea, which I've coined the only statement. So the only statement says, we are the only ones who dot, dot, dot. And you got to fill that in. Okay. The only statement is binary. Okay. It can be observed. It can be measured. And because it's only, it automatically forces, right, you to declare something that's unique from everybody around you. 
Now, I use this very effectively in a strategic planning uh, model that I had to create on my journey to a billion is called Roy's strategic game planning process. Mm -hmm. And I can do this for any organization in 48 hours. Okay. Okay. By answering three questions, how big do you want to be? Which is a question about revenue growth, not net income, because I can give you whatever net income you want, right? I know how to play the income statement game. So it's how, how big do you want to be? Who are you going to, who do you want to serve? And, and we, what do they crave? And the third question is how are you going to compete and win? That's all about differentiation. And what I do is get organizations to work very hardly to come up with their only statement. Okay. And the only statement, again, is not a declaration of what the organization thinks of themselves. It's a declaration, okay, of their uniqueness relative to what their customers, i.e. the customers that they've decided to serve, crave, not even need. We could dig into that if you want, because I don't believe in customer needs. I believe in customer cravings and secrets and what they lust for, what they covet. Okay. And so everything that you just said about that university, to me, is first of all, it's not, it's not, a, it's, it's a very typical problem mm-hmm. that everybody has. Because what they do is they go back to the textbook, Daniel, right? And one of the things I say is, guys, put the textbook down. Let's, you and I have a conversation. Because I've taken an organization to a billion. The people that are writing those textbooks have not. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's have a conversation about what is practical, because I'm a practical guy, right? I believe in how-to stuff that actually resonates with people and drives their performance to do what? To get to a billion. Isn't that my job? Right? And when I look around, the support mechanisms, unfortunately, are woefully inadequate. That's why I had to create an only statement. That's why I had to create my own strategic planning process. That's why I had to create a program called Cleanse the Inside, which is all about increasing the viscosity of the machine. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, you won't find that, right, in Economics 101, because the people writing that have never done it. And that's the point. And so the university needs to give me a call. We can do this in 48 hours. I guarantee it. Yeah, for sure. And I like how you mentioned that or you phrased that as in the only statement. So this is going to sound like a really basic one. And, you know, one I came up with in 48 seconds, not 48 (laughs) hours. But say, for example, instead of blend mission statement A to be like, you know, we're the only university that provides people with on with this is going to sound very general, but we're the only university that simulates this kind of job experience, whether that's true or not. Ideally, it's true, but ideally, it's something that differentiates themselves from other schools. Something so, along so, that. OK, so let's just hang on right there. So the first thing I would say is I need to see, OK, a definition of who you want to serve, because mm-hmm. the only statement is not about the marketplace. It's not a general expression of being only. It says, okay, you've chosen customer group A, B, and C, for example, to serve, right? The next thing you do is you drill down on what they crave, not what they need. What is it that in this, in a, in a, in a, in a sort of the end of the day, right? The cool of the evening, sipping a martini, what is it that they crave? Now you build your only statement around that. So to your point, okay, my question is, in, in, in your case of the only statement, I would be drilling down saying, okay, let's really be clear on who you're going to serve. Let's really be clear on what they crave, not what they need. All right. They need an education. whoop de do It's like selling boats. People expect boats to float. Okay. People go to university to get educated. Don't tell me that that's going to differentiate one university from another. It will not. Go and check out your students, figure out what they crave. And now, craft something that plays into that. 
it's it's a challenge. I'll tell you why. Because generally speaking, um, the clients that I work with, we end up reframing their business. Let me give you an example. Okay, so I just completed. Um, <laughs> it was just such a cool uh, uh, experience with a with a, a company in Ontario who thought they were in the boat selling business. Okay, so they sold boats to dealers. Okay, so they came to me and he said, Roy, we need some help taking the business to another level. And I said, okay, we're going to go through my strategic game planning process. And so we defined how big they wanted to be and I, whatever it was, who you're going to yeah. serve. They chose to define the who they're going to serve as boat dealers in a specific geographic area of Ontario, mm. getting really, really focused. Okay, so when I asked them the next question, well, what do these boat dealers really desire? Well, they were stumped. They go, hmm, well, they need quality boats. I said, bullshit. That's not what they want. They can get that from anybody. What do they really need? So after a lot of conversation, they, they discovered. They said, well, I think what they really need is they really need help growing their business. And I go, okay, let's talk about that. Do you think you could help them grow their business using your boat? as an anchor, bad choice of words, but as an anchor in the value proposition. And so we worked with this and basically came up with this only statement, Daniel, and it's smoking hot, okay? This marine company is the only complete service provider committed to delivering solutions to grow a boat dealer's business. So they're not in the boat business at all. They're in the business development business using boats plus value-added competencies competencies and skills to help those dealers actually become economic growth engines in and of themselves. Well, when they landed on this, they just went crazy. They went, OMG, what? Really? And, and so my next question is, so who's your competition? You know what the answer was? Nobody. Okay, now we're talking only statement. So what I would say to the universities, let's spend time figuring out who you want to serve, who you want to talk to. And don't just tell me students. No, 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 not good enough. We need to be really granular on that, figure out what they crave, and now be in a position to define your, what your only statement is. I can't tell you what it is because that's the work that mm -hmm. has to be done. But what I can tell you is at the end of the day, we figure it out and we may reframe the business or the, 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 uh, the academic institution somewhat, in order that it is unique. And isn't that the end result that we all want? We don't want to increase the herd by one, Daniel, right? We want to get out of the herd. Mm -hmm. We want to be the benchmark for the herd, right? We want to be the leader of the herd. So, you know, we can, we can do with that. And I have to say, it's been so much fun working with organizations because when I see their eyes light up after having gone through this, I just, I feel good. It makes me feel good. But yeah. Um, and, and don't feel bad, you guys out there, about the fact that you haven't figured it out. Look, at, you're probably one of a billion people that haven't figured it out. Let's have a conversation. We can do this together. Uh, that's my mission in life. That's what I do. I want to pass it on. I want to pay it forward. And let's make some beautiful only music together. I think uh, I really like the way you frame that in the sense that they found out, obviously, tangibly selling boats, but they really learned how to help their clients who happen to be purchasing boats really grow their businesses. So I thought of another only statement. I'll give it one last try. But <laughs> say, for example, we're the only university that has classes on the beach, for example. Well, 
Okay, so I would say, okay, how does that relate to what your who craves? Students, oh. students crave not to, in the back of my mind, I was just thinking students crave oh. not to be in the classroom and they crave to be outside in nature okay. and kind of a better okay. setting. So I know it's not a perfect one and one on the spot. No, 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 no. No, look at uh, that's that's the sort of kind of nonlinear thinking <laughs> that, that we need to, to bring to bear in this process. And so if you discovered, right, that, you're, that, that the customer segment, the student segment you wanted to serve were those students who hated being in a classroom and they loved because they're all from California. They wanted to be on the beach. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's go find some of those people and discover what they crave. And then we craft the only statement around that. But you do have in your head the process right. That's the process. One day uh, we'll get there. Uh, so appreciate the discussion around that. Uh, another thing that you're famous for is often discussing, you know, the unheard of ways that companies can increase sales. Can you preview some of these ways and how companies can implement them to really take their sales to the next level? Yeah, um, it, it's kind of in this whole notion of scaling that that we have the, the conversation because it, it, I observed that that when people start talking about scaling a business, more often than not, they're referring to costs. How can we drive unit costs down? And the reality is um, that the true definition of scaling is to have a business where revenue growth, right, is disproportionately greater than cost reduction. If you can do that, then you're really scaling the business. So, you know, and so, so, let, so what I do is I say, let's start with the revenue side of the equation. And once we figure out what the revenue plan is, then we'll figure out how to architect delivery within that. And that will drive the cost side. Make sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. it does make sense. You don't start off with the cost side, for heaven's sakes, right? Because costs are a function of volume mm -hmm. and unit sales, which are a function of revenue and all we do on that side of the equation. So the first thing that, that I would say is kind of related to what we've just been discussing, right? You cannot scale anything if you're not the only one that does what you do. Mm -hmm. So this whole issue of differentiation, I know I'm repeating myself and I will forever until we, we get you know, the glut of the population inside the, the, the big part of the, of the normal distribution curve, accepting that that's the way to do things. So it starts out with, are you clear? Okay, have you got granularity around um, being the only one that does what you do? Okay, so once you have that, you now have the basics, okay, for taking a value proposition to the market that is meaningful. And without that, forget about trying to scale. You can't scale if you're not unique. Right. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, you somehow are a Walmart or whatever, and you got economies of scale and yeah. scope. Good on you. But by the way, us mere mortals, we don't have that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we exist in, in red oceans, not blue oceans, but in red oceans, and we have to fight for our survival. So, so, get, that, so get that piece right. Um, another thing that, that really worked for me is, was the fact that um, I spent most of my time on what most people would call retention activities. Not very sexy, okay, where the rest of the world is figuring out how to acquire new customers by giving away television sets and making special deals that, that, couldn't, that didn't apply to their existing customer base. I was busy trying to figure out what my existing loyal customers craved and trying to grow what I call share of wallet. Okay, so put the emphasis on taking care of those existing customers as opposed to getting mesmerized by providing special deals to attract new customers away from their current supplier with the crazy belief that they will never leave you if somebody else came along and offered them another silly deal. 
<laughs> like if I'm going to leave you for a for a TV, what makes you think that I won't leave you if somebody gives me two TVs? The reality is I will leave because I'm a I'm a I'm, I'm a promiscuous purchaser. Okay, yeah. I will go where the best deal is. And the unfortunate thing is the existing customer base is infuriated by that because it doesn't apply to them. You know, companies offer new deals. No, it doesn't apply to existing customers. I find that completely intellectually dishonest and, and, and just like so disingenuous. And these same companies will claim that they are customer focused. <laughs> Give me a break. Uh, you know? on, that, on that note, in your experience focusing on customer retention, have you noticed any methods that work better than others when trying to retain customers and boost sales? Well, I mean, the engagement process is critical. I mean, you have to be able to engage. It's not a function of artificial intelligence, Daniel. Okay. People ask me, what do you think about AI? And I said, it scares the hell out of me, quite frankly. Um, it, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the reasons is it, it masks uniqueness because it draws on, it has an algorithm that crawls databases and pulls out of that and gives you an easy solution. You have no identity. If, you're, if you've created an AI solution for something, it's not yours, right? It's a, it's a billion other people who somehow made a contribution through a formula and an algorithm, right, that, that digs into your stuff. And so um, for me, and I know this is old school, okay, because people are, oh, their eyes are glazing over and wow, I want them to talk about, you know, CRM and using AI and blah, blah, blah. Not, no, I'm not going to talk that way because human beings cannot be formularized. <laughs> human beings cannot be served by an FAQ on a website. Because generally, when they're on a website asking a question, it's a unique question. So how many times have you been really pissed off with an FAQ page? It happens to me all the time. In fact, I refuse to do it now. So we had a very, very deep engagement process with every customer contact employee, particularly sales, okay, where they had a job to reach out, right, and, and, and initiate uh, some conversations with a pointed outcome. How can we serve you better? Okay, which solutions uh, should I be putting to you to grow? Because I don't have to fight, right, the, the differentiation challenge because I already have these people, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm already saving bandwidth. All I'm going to do is try and understand them better, figure out what they need, what their needs and cravings are, not what their needs are, and then supply solutions into that. So that was our emphasis. Now, did we, did we have new customer acquisition programs? Very few. Okay, very few. I mean, we had a lot of new customers come to us, but guess why they came to us? They came to us because they got good referrals. They saw what we were doing with human beings and they liked what they, what they saw and they wanted to experience the feeling. And so they came and we had a good brand. We, you know, we had a, a good solid brand and and so you you have to you have to make sure that um, that that part of the business is defined really really well. Look at there's there's too much emphasis on tactics these days in my okay. view. Okay, everybody's playing in the same AI space. Everybody's playing in the same social media space. And and all I say is that may be okay, but it may not be okay depending on what your strategic context is. That's why earlier I said, look at the place to start is, do you have a context for your actions? If you don't, get the context first. Okay, so if you're going to focus on retention, let's create that strategic imperative 
And then let's drill down on it and start to define a finite number of programs, okay, that resonate with customers and actually lead to retention. The other, the other advantage of that, by the way, is employee engagement in the organization goes through the roof. Well, because now they understand what they're doing and they have a reason for existing as opposed to just being tactically driven on the flavor of the month or the flavor of the day. You know, I had a guy I uh, had had a, a drink with on, on Friday and he was really excited about technology um, as he should be. I mean, technology is kind of cool to watch. It's got mm. some issues yeah. um, because it exists in and of itself. And I just told you the context is the most important thing. So right away I'm at odds, right? But he, but, but he, he believed that, that writing, okay, which is what I do a lot of, uh, is something that can be really facilitated with artificial intelligence. And, and he wanted to know if I used it, right? And I said, absolutely not. I says, if I did, I'd be losing my identity. As a matter of fact, there's a class action suit in the U.S. Mm-hmm. by a bunch of authors. Okay, against, yeah. style. Wow, exactly. They just crawl the data. Right. And they, they write stuff. And I say, you know what? I may be old school, but people know who I am. Okay. I've got an edge. Nobody can duplicate my, the way I talk. Nobody can duplicate my language. Nobody can duplicate my passion, right? Not AI and nothing. And that's the way I want to keep it. The problem is the easy way, Daniel, is to use the technology. That doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. That's the point I want to make. No, it's it's a good point on that note. And I'm really happy about one of the things you just mentioned, because on a deeper level, do you think that customer retention and the methods you use depend on your customer base, not necessarily the methods? Well, it, it yeah, it, you know, you have to flex depending mm-hmm. on the customer groups that you're serving, because no, the reason that you've grouped them is because they're different. Mm-hmm. Right. So group A is going to need special treatment relative to group B. Absolutely right. That's one of the reasons why you want to minimize the number of customer groups you serve. Like if you have if you have a growth goal of $10 million, I mean, what I say is, okay, is there one customer group that will give you the 10 million? That would be Nirvana, okay? Fast and easy, get in, get out. Because I my planning is a 24-month plan. Mm-hmm. It's not a five-year plan. Five-year plans suck. They don't exist because the fourth year never shows up, Yep. right? And so you want something that's built to execute. That's a 24-month plan. You don't have the time for a 12-month selling cycle, okay? If you do, the run rate on your revenues goes down and you never hit the target. Okay, and so what we try and do is minimize the number of customer groups. Each of those groups needs to be looked at independently. Okay, the only statement will be the same because you're looking at the same set of values. Okay, but the way you get to them will be different. Mm-hmm. because the customers in those groups are different and the way you retain them will probably be different. If you happen to get lucky and have a retention formula that applies to all the five customer groups that you've decided to serve, good on you. I mean, that's, that's super work. Um, but, but a lot of times you have to vary them. For sure. Vary the treatment. Yep. And I like the approach you take in focusing on the customer and varying, you know, as necessary. Uh, but another one of the things that you mentioned is executing on those strategies and complete pun intended on this, your first book titled execute first plan second, which I think is a great title by the way. And I think something that not enough people are doing, which, you know, is a topic that could be a whole episode onto itself. Um, but essentially why do you think that it's important not to overplan and to ultimately, uh, you know, at least plan a little bit, but mostly focus on taking action and learning fast as opposed to just trying to be perfect from the start? 
Well, the problem is when you're pondering too much, you're not doing anything, right? And, and, and performance comes from action. It doesn't come from the intellect. Okay, the, re- the left brain of your, hem- of your, the left side of your, your hemisphere doesn't make any contribution to getting results. It's what you do with that mm-hmm. okay, that actually contributes to rest. So that's, that's why I came up with this execute first, plan second. It's my way of saying, today you're probably spending 80% of your time on getting the plan right. Using all of the SME stuff, all of the subject matter expert stuff, all of the, all of the academic pundit tr- strategic planning models, you're doing all that predictive equation, boom, you get all that stuff done. And wow, it's, it's cool as hell. The problem is you're going to spend three months doing that. And in the meantime, your competitors are running by you because you're not doing dick. Mm-hmm. You, need, you need to not do dick. You need to do something. So... What I want to see in, in, in my world, the whole, the whole notion is let's flip that around. I want to spend 80, 20% of, the, of, of the, my time getting the plan just about right and 80% on execution because that's, that's the sweet spot. That's the juice. The juice is not in the plan. Look at <laughs> how can you come up with a perfect plan in a world that isn't perfect? Come on, Daniel. How the hell can you do that? And yet everybody... Everybody, buddy, promulgates, you got to get the plan right. Okay, I don't know who's defining right, by the way, but in a world that, that, that is uncertain, unpredictable, right, absolutely changes on you every three nanoseconds, why on earth would you try and get it just perfect? Okay, so my notion is, let's head west. Okay, you're in Philadelphia. <laughs> Your plan should be, I'm heading west. And here's some fundamentals, but I'm heading west. I'm not going to tell you exactly where I'm going, Wes, because I don't know that yet. I'm not smart enough to figure that out because there's too many variables. And if you ask me to develop a regression analysis, I'm going to tell you to go home because mm-hmm. the regression analysis is use- useless. Like in my, my degrees in math, I've never solved a business equation using differential equations. Okay. Never happened. Mm-hmm. So get it just about right. Start executing. Learn from execution. So I call it planning on the run. So the notion that I came up with was what we're really saying is build a culture, okay, around execution, not the plan, okay? And when we arrive in Seattle, okay, we will arrive in Seattle because we've learned along the way that that was the right place to end up, mm-hmm. that that maximized our perform- performance and our return. But we, there's no way we would have known that when we started in Philadelphia. There's just too many variables. And so I say... Let's recognize that the, the planning process that most people use is severely flawed because it hasn't, ha- hasn't kept pace with the way the world is. You can't be perfect in an imperfect world. You can't be perfect in a world that changes on you every nanosecond. And, and what, what drives me insane is the fact that people continue to try and do that. Look at my planning process that I work with with clients takes 48 hours. Boom. Done. Your plan at the head west, we get that. Mm-hmm. And it's done with a little more precision than just head west. But you understand what I'm saying. The head west philosophy carries with it the notion that you, you, you're not going to be trying try to be precise. So in 48 hours, we've got a plan to head west. We've got a differential advantage. And we've got programs to get there. And we've also got a process to review all the time. What's working, what's not working. Tweak on the run. And we'll figure it out on, as we go. And generally, people are really uncomfortable with that at first because they've been taught to do something else. They've been taught that 
that this process is finite. Mm-hmm. Okay, that it's perfectly finite because they read it in a book. Guys, put the textbook down. For sure, pick up the fiction, put down the uh, the textbook. That's, that's <laughs> the Maybe that should be the new mantra. But uh, there you do, go. Do you think that a good way of looking at it right now, uh, the issue would be that they spend maybe eighty percent of the time planning and twenty percent of the time executing, when in reality that should be flipped. So maybe spend that's what planning. I that's what I was just saying. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. the execute first, plan second model is twenty percent on planning to get it just about right, 80% on figuring out how we're gonna inch our way, right, in baby steps, because it is. There's no silver bullets in this game at all. I mean, you know, there's there's very few leaders around like Steve Jobs was and and these other guys that are, mm-hmm. are just like so gifted. Most of us are mortals and we need to inch our way along and take advantage of of trying and failing and learning on the way. That's just the way it is. That's the world of red oceans that we're all in. And so, you know, to try and go after a blue ocean, forget that. That's it's nonsensical, unless you want to spend six months of your life pondering academics. And, and I know I'm being tough on academia here, and I'm doing it with a really specific reason in mind, because we, are, we live in an asymmetric world. The world is asymmetrically in favor of thinking and not doing. <laughs> and I don't blame us, because in school, we were taught that way. You got A's by learning the content. Mm-hmm. nobody taught us and gave us A's for doing stuff with it. Nobody did. And so I understand why people do that. And I'm just trying to be a disruptor. Look at the world needs that whole model to be disrupted, Daniel. Mm-hmm. It no, needs to be disrupted. For sure. I definitely agree. And I think um, one of the things that you also mentioned, uh, you also happened to write a book called Marketing Calendar. By the way, all these books are uh, second titled um, <laughs> What was the phrase again? Be different or die. So be I, I different like, or be dead. Be different or be dead. Be different or be dead. So I like the end convention there. But say, for example, uh, in that book, what do you hope that executives can or any business people or anyone you know trying to do something different with their company take away in regards to how they plan out their plans or you know, they execute? So this is the calendar book you're referring calendar to? Book, yeah. Yeah. So what I've tried to do there is is give some clues as to how a leader uh, should spend their time. If they're looking for ways to, to to build their organization into a high performance machine, and all it all it really is is a compendium of the things that occupied my week, and I just tried to segregate it uh, in terms of here's what you should do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and so there's a role for for customers in that. Like I was I was a guy that spent a ton of time with customers. Okay, that wasn't something that I delegated. I mean, my people did it as well. But there's no substitute for the president of the company sitting across the table from another CEO getting exactly what's working and what's not. And you had to have a high pain tolerance. That's when I discovered that pain is a strategic concept Mm. because they would tell you things and it it was not pleasant, but nevertheless, it was needed. And so I got a I got a ton of execution related ideas from those sorts of meetings. I believe in leadership by serving around, not leadership by managing around. Uh, Leadership by serving around is all about asking people in the workplace, how can I help? So I was a how can I help guy. Okay, so the whole idea was tell me the things that are preventing you from doing your job slash executing the strategy slash uh, not achieving the level of performance, getting me closer to a billion. So none of this stuff was based on, oh, it's a cool idea. It was based on the key things that needed to be done in order to execute the strategy better and get us along the growth curve. 
And so I spent probably just as much time with frontline people. Uh, I can't remember what day that is in the, in the calendar book, but with frontline people uh, as with customers. And I had this, this one concept called the bear pit, that the bear pit was, uh, was Roy's way of, of entering into an employee meeting, uh, a, you know, a large meet, not a large meeting, 20, 25, 30 people, cross-functional meeting with, with everybody without an entourage. And so I was going into the pit by myself, okay, as the leader. And the questions were basically, hey, guys, what's pissing you off? What do you like about what's going on? What's stopping you from delivering, you know, dazzling, gas-worthy customer experiences? Because that was part of the, and I got so much information. And, and then the obligation for me was I had to deliver. Because I did these these bear pits every month, and it got to the point where people were were sending me uh, messages asking when's the next one because they wanted to attend, right? So did that. The 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 um, so there were a number of things like that um, uh, during the week. I can't remember what the other days were offhand, but uh, I'm sure you're looking at once. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I think uh, I think it's a really great point there, and I think on a personal note, and would love to know your thought on this. Maybe the issue with a lot of people as they climb the corporate ladder, for example, is, you know, when you're in an entry level role, you're doing all the dirty work, for lack of a better word, you're putting together all the slideshows, getting all like the random facts of research. And often we find as people advance through the corporate structure, what they do is they're like, oh, you know, I'm above that. I don't need to do that anymore. When on one end, you know, obviously you're doing more strategic work, you're kind of more client facing. Uh, but on the other end, there's also kind of this ego that goes along with it. That's like, oh, I don't have to do that work anymore. Um, and I think ultimately that's just one, it's not a sustainable career path and two, a quick way to piss a lot of people off. Whereas I think a lot of really successful leaders, what they do is they go from a service first mindset. And while they may be doing more strategic decisions, they're always willing to talk to people and help people out and really, uh, you know, help me help you kind of thing instead of just like help me, you know, be the best executive that I can be. So, you know, my face is the only one that matters. Yeah. And I, I liken this to our previous conversation about what, what drives that behavior. Uh, in terms of distancing themselves from the people that they should be serving. Well, what, what drives them are, are books on leadership. Okay. Tell me a book that you've read out there by a quote, famous business author that talks about bear pits and so, the essence behind a bear pit doesn't exist. My friend doesn't exist. Okay. There's a lot of sort of academic theoretical kind of notions out there. You call them strategic. Yeah, that's generally a word that they will say, my job is strategy. Look at the reality is, and I sat through these, they're not strategic people. Subject matter experts come in, dump a bunch of stuff, make a recommendation. Okay, there's a whole bunch of indecision. And finally, the CEO beats them into something. They all agree. Then they go back to doing what they were doing yesterday and delegate any role they have in that strategy to their people. So I believe in what I call strategic micromanagement. I do believe in micromanagement. I am a micromanager in the things that were critical for me to do to execute my strategy. So there were certain things that I had to do as a leader to put my, my own personal fingerprint on. And I always did it. One was dealing with frontline people. Okay, secondly was architecting what the customer moment looked like. Like it's one thing to say to the organization, and I laugh when I read this stuff, yeah, we're in the business of creating memorable customer experiences. 
okay, that's hogwash mm -hmm. simply because I want to know exactly what that looks like. Well, the reason that it, I can't find that information is nobody's done the work, right? The executive has said, yep, that's the right thing to do. And then promptly gone off and done other things or delegated it to the business development VP to go and spread the word and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Strategic micromanagement is about fingerprints, taking accountability. There's a lot of leaders that, that aren't accountable, right? They're abdicating by the way they delegate. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's certain things that, yeah, makes sense to delegate, but there are other things make that make no sense to delegate and, and people have got to get their head around it. And it leads back to the, to the syndrome that you were describing before. Okay. Of people rising up through the, through, through the ranks and they forget about the personal role that they have in driving the performance of their organization, because an executive's role is to get performance up. It's not to promulgate academic leadership principles, mm -hmm. right? It just isn't. I don't care about your conflict management skills. What I care about is what are you doing, okay, to take care of what people crave? What are you doing to get light fires in the people in the organization so that they do a better job, right? And they drive performance up. What are you doing to discover what, what your customer groups crave? And how many hours have you spent trying? How many tries did you have last last week, Daniel, as, a, as an executive vice president of marketing, how many tries did you have and how many failures did you have? And what did you do with the failures? That's what I want to know, because all of those questions relate to behaviors that I discovered are so critical to high performing organizations. And we did those sorts of crazy little things to get to a billion. So this stuff works. Yeah, for I mean, we, sure. We, we, kissed, we kissed off the textbook in like year one, believe me, speaking it, of, wasn't any, it wasn't useful. Yeah, speaking of textbooks, I was going to say, if you ask that to say the traditional executive or kind of the typical executive right now, they're going to be like, oh, I, I was reading a book instead of actually trying trying these strategies. So <laughs> can uh, definitely resonate with you on that. But uh, I think it's a really good point in the sense that people need to kind of go more with a service first attitude and kind of put the textbook aside and focus more about how to actually do something as opposed to just kind of trying principles that everyone else is trying to do. So really resonate with you on that point. And on a similar note, you know, another blog post of yours that I actually was able to read was creating a, a hypnotic brand. So for those that don't know, um, the way my interpret, the way I interpret it is creating a brand that people can help be attracted to. So what steps do you think companies can take to really create these brands that people just can't take their eyes off of or are insatiably attracted to? Okay. Well, the first thing is it's not about that. It's not about what it looks like, and it's not about the creative expression. What mm -hmm. it's about is the declaration of how you are special relative to everybody else. Got it. Like, like by now, you know that I'm singular-minded. Okay. Everything for me is driven by a strategy that creates uniqueness for you in the way other people care about. The brand is no different. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely, I mean, the brands that I, I read, see today um, are all about creative expression. They're not about content. Okay. Content. Okay. For me is a brand that clearly says how you are different. It's based on this whole only statement notion. And so if you do your work, you have an only statement. That only statement resonates through marketing and sales and marketing communications and branding and everything else, okay? Um, it's not about declaring, what, again, what you think you are and who you think you are. Today, branding is all about creative expression. And when I read a lot of the, a, a lot of the 
branding statements, I just shake my head, mate, because they're not very effective. They're they're the they're the grandiose narcissistic view, okay, of how they're going to exist in the world. I look at and I I'm not being I'm trying not to be mean here, okay, and because I know narcissism is is carrying an interesting connotation, but I can't think of any other word to describe the behavior. Again, everybody, it's not about what you think of you. It's about what they think of you, right? So you have to create good reasons for them to want to engage with you. And it's not by saying you're better at customer service. It's not about those aspirational things. It's about do the work, figure out your only statement, and then let's develop a brand and a brand position uh, that's consistent with it. And then, Daniel, to your point, let's figure out what it looks like. The last part of the equation is what it looks like. And yet today, that's the first part. Yep, for and, sure. And I say, I say, shame on you, marketing people, for doing that. Like, and I was a CMO, so I've got a right to be tough on marketing. Mm-hmm. And you guys, shame on you for leading with creative expression in a world that's thirsts for information on what makes you special in a way that I care about. That's what you as marketing people need to do. For so sure. Get on it. So... Instead of positioning a brand around ourselves, position it around your customers and the rest will take care of the, will take care of itself. Well, position it around the, the only work that you've done. Again, the, the whole thing, look at this whole shtick is based on differentiate, differentiate, differentiate. What makes me different than everybody else is I take that notion and I drive it down to saying, okay, what does that mean in terms of developing a strategy? What does that mean in terms of customer service? What does that mean in terms of branding? What does it mean in terms of marketing product development? What does it mean in terms of packaging? What does it mean in terms of HR? Okay, so none of that stuff exists in a vacuum. It exists as a function of being the only one that does what we do. Yep, That's the system. No, I think it's a beautiful system and beautifully said there. And clearly you have kind of a lot of marketing knowledge and are a great advisor to these. But on a personal note, kind of, if you could go back and tell yourself anything, is there anything that you wish you, you knew beforehand before getting into all this or pursuing your career? Um, I, I, well, it's a, it's a tough one because I'm, I'm kind of a, like a learner on the, on the run. So I guess, I guess I underestimated, um, the difficulty in trying to do what you and I have just had a conversation around Mm -hmm. because I was asked to take over an internet company in a telecommunications business that was just coming through, right? A transition from being a monopoly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, just imagine, yeah, I mean, imagine. So the cultural change that was required was terribly difficult terribly difficult, required tenacity, required a high tolerance of pain, required me to go out and gather advocates of this whole be different or be dead thing. I didn't call it that at the time. I called it that by when I sat down and started writing books on it and it occurred to me that that's what it was. But it was this whole notion of doing things differently, right? And I underestimated, you know, how dug in people were to the old world uh, and and I'm and and how and how they needed to be helped along the way, right? And convince them that there was gold at the end of the new rainbow, right? And so I underestimated how difficult that was. It was exceedingly um, painful, quite frankly. And and uh, my takeaway was, if I hadn't had 
this whole no drive to be different running through my veins and part of my DNA structure. If I hadn't had that, I probably wouldn't have been able to achieve it. Mm. Right? So I say to people who are looking to make a difference, if it's not running through your veins, uh, it's going to be a hard go. In other words, what I'm saying to you is it's not about the intellect. Mm -hmm. Nothing it's happens to the intellect. This was all emotional energy and passion and right brain stuff. Mm -hmm. And unless you have that, you're not going to make it. And so, yeah, I kind of underestimated that. Fortunately, I have a wife that, um, I mean, she's, yeah, awesome. Mm -hmm. She got me through this and she just supported me the whole way. And if it weren't for her, uh, I, it wouldn't have happened because she yeah. allowed me to be who I had to be to make this thing work. No, beautiful for sure. And definitely love the fact that we love uh, all the significant others out there. Uh, so really it's something that you have to be passionate about and something you have to be, well, you can look at it objectively, something you have to be a little emotionally invested in. And you knew from early on, this was the path you wanted to take. Yeah, had to be, had for to be. Sure. And in retrospect, uh, seriously, had I not, had I not had that fortitude and I'm, I'm positive. I got it from my mom. I mean, she was the most, she was a, uh, she was one of 12 in her family. I'm an only kid. So she went from 12 siblings to me, but I'm pretty sure what she brought to me was this drive to succeed. Cause she had to with, with 11 siblings, she had to fight for meals in the day. I mean, so she was a fighter and I'm pretty sure I inherited, I sure as heck didn't get it from my dad. My dad was so laid back and cool, right? I wish I had more of him, but I'm pretty sure I got it from my mom. And if, had I not, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it. Uh, beautiful, beautiful to share for sure. On another personal note, is there anyone that you'd love to get dinner with that are alive? Yeah. What a great question. And it just, what a great love. And you had no idea that this was coming either. Because mm -hmm. um, hopefully I've surprised you a couple of times in this, this conversation. Good, good there is. There is. There is a guy that I would love to have had the opportunity to have lunch with and his name is uh was jerry garcia jerry garcia rest in may as him may you rest in peace was a was the leader and lead guitar player of a rock and roll band in the day called the grateful dead uh you may not know who the grateful dead uh, was uh people in your audience may or may not <laughs> the grateful dead um was the most successful rock band touring rock band in history so even up to this date with all of the other acts and so on and so forth. Now, I haven't compared them, right, to uh, to Taylor Swift, okay? So I, I haven't done my due diligence on that yet. But the Grateful Dead as a, as, as a band was also an enterprise, okay? It was an enterprise led by Jerry Garcia, who had this amazing ability to be way ahead of his time. In a world that didn't have social media, he figured out how to communicate with his fans. Right in a world of 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 a desperate uh, differentiation and competition, he decided that he was going to allow his fans record his music and share his music. Okay, these are in the days where copyright law was a major concern for for musicians. They didn't want to do this. Garcia and the Dead set up and invested in special stands for their fans to come in and record on probably beta tapes yep. or these little cassette tapes, record the dead music, right? Um, he recorded, or he, he believed in leadership spontaneity, okay? In a world that where everybody else had their little itinerary and song sheet of all the songs, Garcia would, would stand up and say, turn around to his band and say, what are we gonna play? 
and boom, they would just take off, you know, impromptu stuff like that. But he was a consummate business person. In fact, to this day, the Grateful Dead, like I buy their t-shirts and everything else online, right? They're, they're just, you know, they're just there, ubiquitous out there. But Garcia, uh, and there's been several books written about him. One I would suggest that you take a look at is called The Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. It's just a great read. And I would love to have had the chance to have a beer with Jerry Garcia and talk to him about what the hell was in his mind in a time when nobody else thought the way he did. And you know what his favorite expression was? And you'll laugh at this, right? Mm -hmm. It was, and I quote, you don't want merely to be the best of the best. You want to be the only one that does what you do. Wow. That's Jer Jerry Garcia. Now, I did not copy Jerry Garcia. I found him. I discovered him long after I started. And when I did, I went, oh, my God, this That's guy. Look at the way he was thinking. So, yeah, Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead. Check him out. Yep, for sure. I think it's a, it's an awesome, awesome name to bring up. And I think it's interesting how you frame that because – if you thought of him as a brand, it's almost like you had an emotional reaction to him. So almost, you know, every, um, like if you're representing the customer, every company should try to be the, you know, Jerry Garcia of whatever it is that they're trying to do and be the only one doing it. So I thought a really interesting metaphor there. Uh, but well great, great to bring that up. You know, on a other personal note, what would you say brings you the most happiness in life? Going on vacation. Any favorite Spending vacation? my time in Palm Desert, sitting by the pool, the snake bites pool at the at the Marriott Enclaves, uh, a hotel, not a hotel. It's a it's a timeshare, and sucking on a margarita at one o'clock in the afternoon, and and not really caring about much else. Yeah, that, that, that's the vibe. One day, uh, hopefully, one day I'll end up in Florida and I can have have that every other weekend. But, but I, I will give you one one other one. Seriously, I'm I'm a grandfather of four, mm -hmm. unbelievable kid, awesome. kids, and and my mission in life is to be the only one that, that does what I do in terms of being a papa to them. And so, I mean, you know, for me, a, just an unbelievable day is when I get a call from my 22 year old granddaughter saying, Papa, um, in my job, the new general manager wants me to, to agree to a bonus plan structure. Uh, could you take a look at it for me and tell me what you think? <laughs> Come on. To me, that's the best day when your grandkids uh, still think that you have uh, a significant amount of relevance in their lives. And, and I, just, I just revel in that, that enjoyment every time it happens. And it happens a lot because I'm always in their face about pushing them on this, pushing them about that. And they ask me about everything that they, they come in contact about what's going on in the world today. So I have to stay, I have to stay up to date, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think and I have to be objective in the way I communicate that and translate that and not make decisions for them, but present a point of view. And that's what I do. Just like you and I have been doing today. It's just a point of view. You, you do what you want with it. Um, and, and so that's kind of the way I deal with my relationship with my, my grandchildren. That's very special. No, for sure. And I'm sure that definitely brings a ton of happiness and Speaking of happiness, you know, on a parting note, you've had an incredible career in marketing uh, and, you know, you've bestowed definitely a lot of wisdom and something that a lot of brands could take away from. Uh, but at the end of it all, what do you want to be remembered for? I'd love to be remembered for, for being a, a, a disruptor that actually changed the conversation mm -hmm. in terms of what's going on out there. 
a guy that in, in his own way played a part in disrupting the status quo, uh, the momentum of the past, um, empowering people to, to, to be okay with stepping out and doing things differently uh, and being rewarded for that as opposed to punishment. I would love to be remembered as somebody who had a small role in that. That's all. That's, I think that's a beautiful way to be remembered. And Roy, it's been an absolute blast and a pleasure and really loved having you on. My pleasure, Daniel. And it's seriously, it's my honor to have been part of this. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Roy Osing. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube, and subscribe.